Our first lesson today, we're going to hear about a guy here in Timothy who was instructed very carefully in the faith by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And his spiritual father uh, is, Paul refers to himself as such. He's the one who is continuing to shepherd uh, Timothy. And you're going to see that relationship as we introduce this series with the, the first text, 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. He's not a biological son. Let me just make this very clear. He's a son in the faith. Okay. God's people have unique understandings of relationships, biological versus God's family eternally. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, stuff that doesn't matter much. Churches shouldn't get stressed out about stuff that doesn't matter all that much. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. This is God's word. Our teaching today picks up right where we just left off a couple minutes ago at 1 Timothy 1, 1 through 11. We're here in verse 12. The apostle Paul refers to himself as the worst of sinners. And here's what he says. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. His primary reason for coming here, to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. This is God's word. I mentioned this at the beginning of the service. We're starting a new series that I'm excited about for the next couple of months. We're going to be looking at the 10 chapters of 1st and 2nd Timothy under the theme of pragmatism for young ministers. And uh, if you, just so that we're all on the same page, 
Timothy, he's a younger ministry companion of the Apostle Paul. The first time we encounter him in the New Testament is in Acts 16, where the Apostle Paul and one of his companions, a guy named Silas, are on Paul's second missionary journey. They come to a town called Lystra, and Timothy is an active member in that congregation. And actually, we're also, the Bible goes out of its way to say uh, that he had uh, two faithful women who brought him into the Christian faith. His grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, faithfully instructed him. He's now an adult, young adult, fully engaged in the church. And he's so passionate about this ministry and this gospel that he actually joins Paul on the missionary trip. And he becomes such a helpful understudy to the Apostle Paul that moving forward, when the Apostle Paul can't, he was in high demand. He couldn't be in two places at once all the time. So what he would often do is send Timothy as his sort of proxy and stand-in. And then in like the mid-60s AD, Paul, along with seemingly some other prophets at the time, appointed Timothy to then serve as the bishop of one of the most influential churches in the early, early Christianity. He was bishop of the church in Ephesus. Why are we studying him, though? So when I was planning out some uh, worship plans for the entire year, one of the things that jumped out to me is, again, the, the practicality of this book is, is incredible. It's very kind of straightforward in uh, instruction. But there's, there's other two really compelling reasons for me. The first one is that one of the theme verses of 1 Timothy is in 1 Timothy 4.12, which says, Paul says to Timothy, don't look, let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in, in love, in faith, and in purity. Don't use your yawn, but don't use your youth as an excuse. Now, one of the reasons this is important to me is, I don't know if you know this about our congregation, but uh, interestingly enough, we are a congregation that this year is going to be celebrating its 149th anniversary which is pretty spectacular in and of itself. Uh, clearly, if you exist for 149 years, it's not because of any one person's agenda or whatever, because everybody who started it is no longer with us. They're in heaven now. Uh, it means that there's a spirit to an entity, a spirit, capital S, to a body that is guiding and instructing it. And yet, even though we're 149 years old, the demographic uh, analytics of our congregation actually look like this. I prepared it for our church council last year. We have, by a pretty significant margin, the biggest group in our church is in their 20s and 30s. In other words, I do a lot of cross-congregational analytics. I'm yet to find a church that old that's also that young, you know, if that makes sense. Like, I just haven't seen that before. Now, youth can be both an advantage and a disadvantage in some ways. But the Apostle Paul, the way he frames it in regard to talking to Timothy is he says, at times it can be an obstacle for you and your ministry. Don't let people look down on you. Don't get discouraged. Don't use your youthfulness as an excuse. So I think that was helpful for me for our congregation. The second thing is I'm just kind of passionate about uh, the task of equipping God's people for works of service. I believe that that is the primary role of public ministers. And I'm taking a cue from Ephesians 4 where the Apostle Paul says, evangelists, prophets, pastors, what are you supposed to do? It's not just doing ministry. It's equipping God's people to do ministry, equipping God's people for works of service. Because if we live in the New Testament, in the era of the Spirit, then we're all part of this thing called a universal priesthood. God's Spirit lives inside all of us. The Spirit has given each of us unique gifts. We're all supposed to share in the ministry. Public ministers essentially are coaching and equipping God's people to carry out those ministries collectively as a body. So again, what you have here is Paul giving a young adult 
practical wisdom on doing ministry, and it seems kind of ideal for our particular setting. And this week, we're, again, we're going to look for 10 chapters through First and Second Timothy, but this week we're starting with chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul makes a kind of provocative and controversial claim that he's the worst of sinners. Greatest Christian missionary in world history calls himself the worst of sinners. What does that mean? Uh, so what we're going to break our teaching into is, really, Paul, you know, the worst? Are you the worst? Secondly, Paul says he's an example, a prototype, a model of every Christian moving forward. And thirdly, we're going to see how we're not only sons and daughters of God, but he talks to Timothy as his spiritual son. How are we also sons and daughters of Paul himself? So verses 12 to 15, really, Paul, the worst? Verses 16 17, Paul, the prototype. Verses 18 to 19, sons and daughters of the Apostle Paul. First of all, really, Paul, are you the worst? That's, the, that's honestly the, the biggest problem, if you want to call it that, with this text, is you have the greatest Christian missionary in world history referring to himself in the present tense as the worst of all sinners. The reason that's so problematic is, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually been quite a few pretty terrible people who have roamed the earth before. And for Paul to say, I am the worst of all of them, is pre- that's a pretty outrageous claim. So how? How can Paul possibly be the worst? When people look at this, they tend to come to two false conclusions right off the bat. So the first, at first glance, what a lot of people will say is this is sort of like Jewish hyperbole. It's like exaggeration. Religious people sometimes do this. Religious people sometimes use kind of extremist language, overzealous language. Christians do this too. For some, it's not enough to be a follower of Jesus. You have to be on fire for Jesus. For some, it's not enough to have the Spirit of God inside of you. You have to be slain by the Spirit. Now, by the way, I'm not against any of those terms if you want to use them. All I'm saying is if you refer to yourself as being on fire, people, that's extremist kind of language. The average person outside is going to see that as being kind of extreme language. That's okay, but is that what Paul's doing? Is Paul just using sort of overdramatic religious language here? I don't think so. The second thing that especially modern people will look at with Paul referring to himself as the worst of sinners is a lot of people will think that type of, that's just like self-loathing, self-effacing, religious shaming language, guilt-inducing language. You know, like, think about it like this. If the Apostle Paul lived today and sat in his professional therapist's office and says, I am the worst, most sinful human being on the planet, I guarantee she writes him a prescription immediately, right? Because whether you're talking about professional counselors or whether you're talking about your friends, generally speaking, we absolutely discourage people from that kind of talking that way, from saying, I'm the worst of sinners. We think they're emotionally unhealthy. So let me ask you, do you think that the Apostle Paul is just a little emotionally unhealthy? I don't think so. Um, By the way, I have been clinically depressed before. One of the reasons I know he's not just emotionally unhealthy is when you actually are, if you've never been, if you actually are legitimately depressed, you're incapable of doing like basic tasks in life, like your day-to-day life. Does, this, does Paul look like a guy who's not accomplishing a whole lot? The Apostle Paul accomplished way too much at this moment for him to be dismissed as simply just being kind of depressed. So I don't think he's emotionally unhealthy at all. So, okay, if it's not those things, what does it mean? I'm the worst of all sinners. Two things. Paul teaches us about the nature of sin so that if we don't understand what he's saying, what it means is we don't actually understand the nature of sin very well. Because when you understand the nature of sin, you'd say like, yep, I know exactly what he's talking about. Here's the two points, two things he teaches about the nature of sin. First of all, 
the manifestation of sin is largely a product of your conditions. So, even from childhood to adulthood, let me give you an example of this. If, as a little kid, you lie to another little kid, your friend, about how many toys you have. Maybe you did this as a kid. You kids sometimes exaggerate a little bit about things. If you lie about, let's just say, what toys you have or how many toys you have or whatever else, you can call it whatever you want. It's a lie. And as an adult, if you lie to your spouse about committing an affair, obviously we recognize that the second one has greater ramifications and is more destructive in many ways. However, substantively, it's the exact same mechanism. In both situations, you have people who are compromising the truth. Why? For their own personal convenience. You're compromising truth for your own personal convenience. It's the same substance. It's the same mechanism. We have that inborn from childhood on, by the way. It's the reason why you can sometimes, some of you parents know this, you can look into sometimes a one-year-old's eye, maybe especially a two-year-old's eye, and you can see that glint of like rebellion where you tell them, have you ever talked to a two-year-old, told them not to do something, and they look like they're now more motivated to do it than ever before? Where do they get that? We are inborn with a natural rebellion. It manifests itself in different ways, though. So let me give you another very practical example. I was, I was born and raised by a very loving, very warm, pretty conservative Christian family. Therefore, when I got really angry and bitter growing up, about things not going my way. The way my bitterness would manifest itself is I would say snarky, disrespectful, condescending, derisive, sarcastic statements, right? Uh, by the way, that's still when I get bitter and angry about stuff, how I ex- tend to be tempted to express it. However, if you take my exact same spirit, but you plunk it down in a different location at a different time, let's say, for instance, I was born in the mid-20th century to a German Nazi prison guard who is very disgruntled about life, do you think there's a chance that my exact same spirit might learn to express its bitterness in more destructively violent ways? Of course it would. Now, obviously, the way I'm currently expressing my anger is uh, probably more socially preferable, but what it guarantees is that this me is not at all better than that me. It's the exact same spirit. Let me put it in a slightly different way. This is a great kind of philosophical exercise is, why do you know it is that you aren't like Hitler? Why are you not Hitler? Why Hitler, why you? Um, Most people will say, I'm not Hitler, and they won't maybe even say this, but they intuitively feel this way, because I'm morally superior to Hitler, right? Let me ask you this. How do you know you're not Hitler just because you're not as talented as Hitler? Hitler is this... Like, to capture the imagination of an entire nation and go up against the world, you have to be some kind of charismatic genius. So how do I know I'm, I'm, I'm not Hitler just because I'm a better guy than Hitler? How do I know I'm not Hitler because I have different conditions, different circumstances, and I'm not nearly as talented as Hitler was? I don't know that. I don't know that anybody has fully captured this in modern terms better than a guy who lived during the Soviet prison camps in the mid-20th century came out on the other side of it, was a Christian. He talked about the nature of humanity, all humanity. Uh, He wrote it down in a book that really was sort of like the low-key, slow process to take down the Soviet Union. His name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, but in the Gulag Archipelago is what it's referred to as. He has this great line about the human nature. He says, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. In other words, if only we could round up all the terrible people on the planet, 
put them over there. All us good guys will be over here. We'll destroy them, and then we'll live in a utopia for forever. He says, no, it's not like that. He says, rather, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who's willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That's the Bible's take. That's the orthodox Christian position. That is the reason that none of us should ever think that we are inherently better than any other human being on the planet. Because all of us, quite frankly, are capable of committing the worst thing that ever happened in human history, which is the sacrifice of God's innocent firstborn son. Does anybody here want to reasonably say Jesus was on the cross, but not for them? And if he was there for us, then you are capable of the worst thing in human history, the slaughter of God's firstborn son. We're all in that boat together, right? So Paul is coming to the realization of this, that the manifestation of sin is largely the product of conditions. He's also coming to the realization that sin is primarily a functioning, a human functioning as the center of his and her own universe. That's the fundamental nature of sin. It's not just rule-breaking, it's self-centeredness. It's a little clearer to see in the original language, but what we have here in verse 13 is he says, even though I was once, he uses three terms, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, the statement that he acts in ignorance is actually really helpful because, look, the Apostle Paul thought he was doing the right thing when he was Saul of Tarsus persecuting Christians. If you thought somebody was guilty of blasphemy, they probably deserve some level of reprimanding for that, right? If somebody, he thought he was sincerely doing the right thing. If somebody in our congregation got up and started claiming they were the Messiah and recruiting other people to believe that they were the Messiah, guess what? They would go under church discipline. That is, by the way, like entry level one for when somebody goes under church discipline in a church. It's claiming to be the Messiah. That'll, that'll get you on that list right away, okay? But Paul, he says, I got a pass because I was ignorant. I just didn't know. I didn't know better about who Jesus actually was. But he says, I don't get a complete pass. And the thing that tells us he knows he was doing something wrong, even when he didn't have all the information about Jesus, is the third word that he uses. It's translated here as violent man, but it's the Greek word hebristus. It's where we get our English word hebris from. And it means to arrogantly and willfully cause or allow the harm of other people ahead of yourself. And Paul is saying, yeah, I was definitely that. I definitely cared more about myself than I cared about anybody else on the planet. I definitely was the center of my own universe. And so the Apostle Paul, essentially, what he's coming to understand here is that after his conversion experience, after the road to Damascus, his whole conception of salvation has been redefined. Because before, salvation was to him doing God's commands. And it was based on his performance and obedience to God's commands. But he has come to learn after encountering the grace of Jesus that salvation actually comes not through my obedience, but through Christ's obedience for me, and then Christ loving me enough to die in my place at the cross for my sins. The concept of salvation for him is completely redefined. And in the process, his conception of sin is getting redefined. In the past, up until this point, the Apostle Paul, like some Christians, frankly, thought that sinning was just breaking laws, just breaking commands. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people who exist in churches who actually don't break a whole lot of laws, but who are nonetheless sinning because they're so self-centered. That's the primary definition of sin. He thought it was, when it was based on his performance, then sin was breaking laws. But when it's based on Jesus Christ's performance, 
What sin is, is it's displacing Jesus in my life as the center of my life, pushing Jesus out of the throne in my heart as my Lord and Savior and trying to function as the Lord and Savior, the center of my own existence. That's self-centeredness. That's sin. By the way, this is also the reason why, you know, as a pastor, people will come to you and explain uh, they're struggling with X, Y, and Z. And, you know, somebody, oftentimes it's like, again. So I made that same financial mistake again. I uh, blew up, I got angry, and I said some really unloving things to someone, a loved one, again. I fell into that exact same sexual sin that I confessed to you last week, again. And one of the things that I have to do at that point is sort of coach them to make sure that they're fighting on the right front. And what I have to say is, you know what, this, at, fundamentally, this isn't a sex issue or a language issue or a money issue. You know what this is? It's a pride issue. You're trying to function as your own Lord and Savior. You're trying to call all the shots in your life. You've displaced Jesus as the center of your universe. The bad behaviors, those are just symptoms of the actual sin, which is displacing Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life. When Paul realized this, when Paul realized that the manifestation of particular sins is often conditional, so I have no right to be in judgment of anybody else, and that sin is primarily self-centeredness, which he absolutely was. At that moment, when he came to the conclusion of those two things, he thought, well, according to that criteria, I guess I'm the worst of all sinners. And he was absolutely right. He was 100% accurate. And actually, that is the realization and the confession that everybody this side of heaven who's self-aware in their Christianity needs to also come to. I want to show you one other thing here that's really kind of wild. Verse 15, when it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What I want you to notice is what tense he uses there. Does he say, I used to be a pretty rotten human being, but I, I cleaned up my act, I got born again, and now I'm, I'm actually better than most who are out there the way I live. Is that what Paul's saying? He says, I, in present tense, still am the worst of all sinners. By the way, this has given over the years Bible commentators who don't really understand the nature of humanity very well. This has given fits to them. How can, he, how can he still be? It's the same commentators who struggle with, in Romans 7, Paul talks about struggling with sin. And he says, the good things that I want to do, I don't always do. The bad things that I don't want to do, I keep falling into these things. What a wretched man I am, but thanks be to God who gives me victory in Christ Jesus alone. So there's some Bible commentators who don't understand human nature, who don't know what to do with that. What Paul is describing, I am the worst of sinners in the present sense, he's describing the same thing that Luther would go on to describe many years later in Latin as simul justus et peccator. I am simultaneously justified and sinful. At the exact same time, my status before God for the sake of Jesus Christ, I am perfect, I am righteous, I am holy. That's my status. But this side of heaven, I'm still struggling. I'm battling a sinful nature. A self-aware Christian, this side of heaven, recognizes I have two natures. They're battling with one another every single day. They're in a constant fight. And God is glorified in this lifetime, not by our perfectionism, but by our sober honesty about who we are and what we are, by our constant struggling against that flesh. We don't defend our flesh. We fight against our flesh. And God is glorified, especially when our fight against that flesh comes out of gratitude and understanding the one victory we really needed to win was the one that Jesus already won 2,000 years ago on Calvary. So we've already kind of gotten into it a little bit, but what Paul has been saying is, I'm actually a prototype, meaning this isn't just about me. In verse 16, what he says is, for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, 
Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example. I am an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. What he's saying, I'm a prototype. I'm the model. I'm the, the story of every Christian is the story of me. I come into this world born with an incomplete inborn self-centeredness. I require a ton of patience from God, a ton of grace. I need to repent of my sin, and the only way that I can be redeemed, the only reason I have hope is by the powerful and redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. That's the process. That's the story of every believer. That's Paul's story. And therefore, what we need to learn in, in following Paul and in recognizing his example is, look, when Paul says, by nature, I care more about myself than anyone else, he's both honest and accurate in his assessment. This is every believer must be able to confess this. I'll tell you, as, so as a pastor, I want to model things like repentance and stuff, and yet it's also super awkward to share your personal struggles through a microphone, you know? And so for like a pastor doing that, that's actually kind of tough. But let me give you one example. So every day I'm fighting this self-centered nature. Uh, one that became just so clear to me recently. It was actually back on Juneteenth. And on Juneteenth, if you don't know, there's this massive party and celebration and parade that uh, goes up MLK Drive. And I was uh, down there in the afternoon around four o'clock. I wanted to go and visit some of our volunteers who were at our St. Marcus booth. And they were doing uh, like enrollment stuff and uh, advertising the school. So I went down to say hi to them. It's four o'clock. About a dozen people were there. By about 4.20, and some of you might have seen uh, our mayor went to and did a um, press conference right after this to describe it, uh, but there were gunshots on MLK Drive. It was actually just about two blocks south of where we were at the time. And when those gunshots went out, you know what? It's, it's close to July 4th. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to tell at times, really strong fireworks from gunshots kind of thing. But it became very clear these were gunshots, and the most obvious reason it was is because there was hundreds and hundreds of people running our direction, you know, from two blocks south. Now, uh, the natural human instinct when you see a ton of human beings running is to start running with them. You don't even need to see what they're running from, like the wise thing to do. It's like, it's a little bit like the running of the bulls in Spain. Like, if you actually can see the bull, you're in trouble. Like, you want to you wanna stay ahead of the pack running away from that thing so you don't get gored, right? Uh, so, like, there's hundreds of people running. The natural instinct is I should be running away from whatever they're running away from. I didn't run. I didn't do anything. I just stood there. You know, when gunshots go out, there might be somebody who needs assistance. There might be somebody who needs some protection. There might be somebody who's in danger. I didn't run. I didn't do anything. I was talking to Abe uh, later in the day. I, we were walking our dog, and I was like, honestly, I feel kind of sick to my stomach, not because it happened, but because of what I did or didn't do in the situation. I know, what was I afraid of? I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what I'm called to do in this world, to be willing to lay my life down as a servant for other people. And I just stood there. You know why I stood there? Because my flesh wants nothing more, it wants nothing more than my own safety, my own comfort, my own self-preservation, my own interest, my own happiness, my own everything. I have to fight that. I have to kill that every day. And in that moment, I didn't do it. I just stood there. In case of Paul, in Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7 is the story of the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. And we're actually told, interestingly enough, that there's a guy who's sitting there who is holding the overcoats of, he's not actually throwing stones, but he's holding the overcoats of other people so that they can throw stones better and harder. 
and his name is Saul of Tarsus, and he eventually becomes the Apostle Paul. But we're not actually told, we don't actually know to what degree the Apostle Paul played in, in murdering early Christians, but we know that he was zealous for their persecution, zealous to see bad things happen to them. He was the center of his own universe. And one of the things that's hit me is, how does he come back from that in a sense of when he comes back to Jerusalem one day and he's got to look in the eyes, the widow of Stephen, and he's got to look his kids in the eyes, what are you going to say? You're going to say, I didn't throw any of the stones. I think I would say at that point, you know, I am the embodiment of pride and self-preservation. I'm so sorry. I'm sure it was something like that. See, when everyone thinks they're the center of the universe, it's not just about crossing lines. It's about self-centeredness. When everybody thinks they're the center of the universe, then the planets collide. And when my schedule, my time is primarily my time, not God's redeemed time for his purposes, I get so stingy with showing attentiveness to some people who probably need some attention. And when my money is primarily my money and not money that God has redeemed for his purposes, I get very ungenerous and very cynical in helping others or in advancing the kingdom. When my sexuality is primarily my sexuality, not God's sexuality, which he has redeemed for his glory, what? I hurt people. So when we look at Paul, we're saying, yeah, uh, he's the worst of sinners, but if I understand what he's saying, I probably should be saying the same thing. So if I say I'm the worst of sinners, how am I not going to be psychologically crippled by that? Because that's a pretty intense statement. The answer is in our final part here where we hear about sons and daughters of Paul. Paul is not only the worst of sinners, he's also highly relatable, not just in his sin, but in his salvation. And I love the fact that he refers to Timothy as my son. If you call somebody, you know, he's not biologically his son. If you call somebody my son, one of the things that you're saying is you're a lot like me. You got a lot of the same weaknesses, Timothy, that I got. You got a lot of the same sin nature that I got. But guess what? You've also got the same savior that I got. And it's actually in the next couple of chapters, we're going to go on to see that Paul refers to Timothy in such a way that we get the impression he's not only young, he's kind of insecure. Sometimes those things go hand in hand but he's fairly insecure. How is Paul not going to cripple Timothy with a complex by convincing him that he too is the worst of sinners? You know? You know how he's going to do it? Because he's going to also convince him of the gospel, which says that Timothy is the best in God's sight. I'm the worst of sinners on the planet, but I'm the best thing also in God's sight in this world. That when God looks at Timothy, when God looks at you and me for the sake of Jesus Christ, there's nothing in this universe that's more beautiful to God than me. There's nothing in this world that is more exhilarating and more exciting to God than you. There is nothing that God takes greater satisfaction and gives greater attention to. And he loves to do it. It makes him more proud than you and me. Because you're the best. Not because you produce the best, but because for the sake of Christ, you are the single best thing that God has ever seen. Now, how do you become the best? Not through your performance. You know how you become the best? Through somebody else's performance. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and purifies us from all unrighteousness. Uh, God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. 
Uh, Jesus has given us glory and grace according to the riches of his mercy. That's not every passage of the Bible that explains this. It's just five quick ones that I often run to that explain the basic concept that God loved us enough so much that he did the ultimate thing, which is switch places with us. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he switched for us hell into heaven by going from heaven and going into hell. The only way you can calculate that is the depth of his love for us. And what did we say sin was? Sin fundamentally is substituting myself for God in my life, acting as the center of my own universe. You know what salvation is? It's the exact opposite move. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for us, laying his life down for us in self-sacrificial, other-focused, redeeming love. To the degree that you come to know the life-saving and limitless love of Jesus Christ, you will be able to become the most weirdly honest person that any of your friends knows. Because, look, you will be able to admit truth about yourself, first of all, to yourself, which is sometimes hard for us to do. Secondly, you'll be able to admit truth about yourself to other people. Why? Because who cares what another world full of people who are also the worst of all sinners... Think about you, when the God of the entire universe has poured out his grace and mercy on you in order to make you his eternal kid. We don't have to say everything today. Paul's going to spend the rest of these chapters convincing Timothy of these things. What I do want to close with is this, the last thing that he says to him, the final exhortation from our text. He says, Timothy, young man, my son, hold on to faith and a good conscience. Right after this, he's going to say, there are a bunch of terrible messages that are floating around in your world right now. Uh, he, Paul goes out of his way to mention name names of who's saying these messages and what the messages are. But for our purposes in modern times, let's just say there's a lot of terrible messages. There's sermons that are being preached at you that are revolving around your head every day. Every show you watch, every song you hear, every social media post that you consume, every book that you read, stuff that your friends say, stuff that your family says. I'm not saying it's 100% false. I'm saying it's, a lot of it is not 100% true. It's bad messaging that is floating around you all the time. Fight it. Hold on. Hold on to the truth of God's word. Hold on to the truth of a God who loves you enough to die in your place and restore you eternally. Hold on to the truth of concepts like sin and grace. Don't dismiss those. Hold on to a life that honors God. Hold on, to your, hold on young man, to the one who has been holding on to you since before this world even began. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this moment, we want to let go of some things and grab hold of some things. Help us let go of our fears, our pride, our illusions of control, our self-centeredness, our sin. We leave it at the foot of your cross today and we grab hold of the truth of your word. We grab hold of honesty about ourselves. We grab hold of the reality of heavenly promises. We grab hold of grace in you as our Lord and Savior. May it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.